Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Laura Elvery. Laura is an award-winning author of short fiction. Her work has been featured in Mianjin, Griffith Review, and The Saturday Paper. Her first collection, A Trick of the Light, was a finalist in the Queensland Literary Awards. Laura is joining me today with her latest collection, Ordinary Matter. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Now, 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I love helping people discover new Australian books. Now, if you'd like to help me help others discover, if you're enjoying the podcast, what you can do is you can give us a rating, you can share and do things online, or you can even just word of mouth. If you've got someone that you talk to about books, tell them about the podcast as a way to help them discover authors and new works. Now, today on the show, Ordinary Matter celebrates an extraordinary group of women who have won the Nobel Prize for science. Laura imaginatively recreates moments and imagines worlds that explore the creative lives that have changed the ways that we look at science in our world. Told through a selection of vignettes and short stories, we have a brother remembering his sister's talent for painting, a couple reuniting on a train to Paris, and a woman thrown into a strange and shadowy world of bureaucracy after an incredible find on the beach. Join me as we discover Laura Elvery's Ordinary Matter. I am joined via Zoom by Laura Elvery. Laura is an award-winning author of short fiction. Her work is featured in Mianjin, Griffith Review, The Saturday Paper. Her first collection, A Trick of the Light, was a finalist in the Queensland Literary Awards. And today, Laura is joining me with her latest collection, Ordinary Matter. Laura, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. Nice to be here. Now, Ordinary Matter has a fascinating conceit. You're celebrating the women who have won the Nobel Prize for Science through a selection of vignettes and short stories. Can you talk to me a little bit about where this idea came from? Sure. Yeah, so there are 20 stories in the book um, because there are 19 women who've won the Nobel Prize in either chemistry, physics or medicine. Uh, and Marie Curie won the first two. So she, she gets the first two stories, I guess. With Trick of the Light, the, the title story in Trick of the Light is about the radium girls post-World War One in America who were painting these um, compass dials and watches and clock faces with a radium mixture. It was clearly a terrible idea and very, very dangerous, but they didn't know it at the time. And I have the character in that title story, Trick of the Light, kind of being really excited to have this job, unaware of how this will um kind of doom her and she obliquely references Marie Curie in that story and it sort of became a favourite and I, for some reason I just wasn't quite finished with Marie Curie, I guess, and I just sort of started doing a bit more research about her, wondering what else I could do as a bit of a follow-up and then I came upon Elizabeth Blackburn, who's the only Australian woman to win a Nobel in any field ever and I'd never heard of her, which I thought was interesting or bad on my part and so the first story was Elizabeth was sort of devoted to Elizabeth Blackburn and each of the stories then sort of branched out from that and it became a project and I love a project and it became a project that I could you know do that's the beauty of short fiction I could pick one off and work on it for a little bit or I could 
work on the 15th story or the first story or the 20th story. It didn't really matter how I did it. And the joy, I guess, was finding little links between this woman's work or um, what they were doing that got them into science in the first place. And I sort of took it in all the little different directions that I, I wanted to take the book. That's fascinating because, I mean, I know different writers work in different ways, but to have set yourself such a project, was it was it freeing because you do have such a, an eclectic cast of yes. characters or you've also set yourself a structure? Yes, yes. So I, I had set myself a structure, that's true. I knew early on that I would tell that the order of the stories would be the order of the medals. So Marie Curie, 1903, she gets the first one. She gets the second one, 1911. Her daughter gets the third one, 1933. So I knew the structure would be, or the order perhaps would be those. But really early on, I was a bit stifled by what I thought the book should be. I thought, okay, so it needs to be a bit biographical or or entirely biographical, I guess, or um, does each story need to be set in the year she won or does each story need to be set in the country of her birth? And I started trying to do that and it just just wasn't working. I wasn't interested and, you know, no one's paying you to do this really. So if you're going to set yourself a project, it has to be something that you like, that you're really into or you just give it up or I would have just given it up. Um, and instead I just had to find a way to keep myself interested and to keep myself interested was, was to sort of – um, sounds a bit dopey, but give myself permission to be as odd as I wanted to, to really change the tone of each story. I wanted them to all have different tones, different lengths, um, to some, for some stories to have the woman appear as a character. And in other stories, as you'd know, like she's nowhere near it really, but her research is somewhere near it or it's set in a different time or a different place um, from the woman. And that was the exciting part. As soon as I realized that, and you can do whatever you want, but as soon as I realized I could do that, it did become really, really quite enjoyable actually. And it, and it was something that my brain could, I could be working on several stories or clues or ideas at a time. Now, of course, the, the title has this beautiful irony and double meaning. The stuff of scientific research comes from the ordinary matter of life, but these women were working in fields that were dominated by men and at a time when it mm. was no ordinary matter for them to be doing the incredible things they were doing. Mm. It's, um, they, um, yeah. I, was, I was watching a – I mean, and especially in the, look, especially in the earliest, early parts of the 20th century, that was really true, and the mid-20th century, like Rosalind Yellow – you know, with one woman in a class of 400 or a faculty of 400 men or something. Um, Marie Curie was almost denied her first medal, even though she had contributed enormously to the research that won that first medal for physics until her husband and another person really lobbied for her. Um, Gertrude Elion could barely get a job working as a food scientist for a supermarket chain. Um, Gertie Corey couldn't get work, could only get work if her husband said, I'm not working here unless you give my wife a job. And even then it was like, please do it for free, Gertie, sorry. Like all of these sort of typical um, obstacles that you might expect, but they really were almost uniformly just these really resilient, curious, 
tenacious women and also doing, yes, the ordinary parts of life. And I count myself among that, like I'm a mum and I have a day job. So a lot of these women had partners and children and did both and um, and managed to do all of that and go on to research. And then for some of them, winning the Nobel was a huge deal and it was something they yearned for. And for others, it sort of seemed like it wasn't that big a deal, which is kind of sweet as well, um, that they didn't sort of seek that fame, I guess, that comes with it or it wasn't the be-all and end-all and they just got back to work. Yeah, I mean, science, I guess, is this popular idea of science as, as being maybe a solitary, perhaps a dry academic Absolutely. affair. Now, in, in Grand Canyon, which is the second story in the collection, you depict the Curies, Marie Curie and her daughters, on an American tour, and they are entirely glamorous in the eyes of their American driver. But there's also this sort of undercurrent of danger. Frank, the driver, he watches kind of creepily over the youngest Curie mm, Eve. Totally. Whilst remembering a scene from his youth where, where a girl is being dragged into the woods and he has his own sort of mental justifications for what's going on there. I wondered, were you aiming there to depict perhaps some of the drama of science writ large in life? Well, that one, um, I just was absolutely fascinated by the idea of how Marie Curie got to America. She didn't make any money off her research and was desperate for a single gram of radium. And this American journalist and sort of socialite found out that she would love this gram of radium. It cost $100,000. She didn't have $100,000. So this woman in America tried to sort of crowdfund $100,000. And Curie was by that stage quite ill, um, aging, kind of this idea of a solitary scientist I think really does come a lot from Marie Curie like she got married in the morning in a dark dress so that she could go to the lab in the afternoon like she was really singular um but this woman um Maloney Ms Maloney got her out to America got her daughters out and I was just fascinated Andrew by the idea of how do you con this woman out and when she arrived total celebrity New York Harbour like thousands of people turned out for a scientist arriving on a ship, thousands. Mm. Um, and she went and had lunch at the Carnegie. So I'm totally fascinated when I when I found that detail. That was sort of a clear one for me. Like some of these stories, I could have written them 10 times over. But for Grand Canyon, it became really clear that that was just too good a historical um, piece of information that I then created, Frank, this, this man that probably that doesn't exist, I, I, he came to me and he's a small man in that nothing really interesting has happened in his life and suddenly um, he's in the orbit of these, like you said, glamorous, exciting, brilliant women who um, he watches from afar for quite some time, can barely bring himself to speak to them and he can, but he can see in them what other people can see. He can see their brilliance as well as, yes, thinking the younger daughter is quite beautiful. Um, and so those little bits of history I find totally fascinating. So Grand Canyon is based in this, this a bit of history, a bit of reality, and then 
the fun thing is being able to go, well, I'm going to create this body man, this driver, and what's his story and what in his past, like the girl in the woods, is motivating him to perhaps look out for these women in a different way. Mm. And also that everyone has all these layers to him. He has all these layers. You think he's one thing at the start and perhaps by the end, like I did as I was writing it, no character is sort of singular. He's not, he started out one way and I feel like he sort of became other things as we went. Your narrators are so, they're various and, and, and very, very different. How did you alight on the right voice to capture a particular time and space? Well, going back to Grand Canyon, Frank Wagner, that first line of that story, which describes what he looks like, describes his, he's got a face like a fish and he's very much fish out of water in this suit at the Carnegie's house, you know, one of the one of the richest people in America at the time, and he's this two-bit, you know, whoever who was two weeks ago riding the subway to some factory, can't believe his luck kind of thing. Um, so sometimes it's like that, Andrew. Sometimes I'll get that first line and I'll see where that takes me. So sometimes a voice will come like that or the image of a character and I don't know where the plot will take me. Um, and and then other times I have much more of a clearer idea of, of plot or structure. So the final story, A Brief History of Petroleum, I knew I wanted that to cover a lot of ground, like 50 years or 40 years. So um, if I know that I need to cover a lot of ground, then the voice kind of follows along from that a little bit because it's, you've got to keep up the pace a bit for a story like that. And it becomes about moving the reader through, okay, we're here now. Okay, now we're here. Come with me. Stay with me for these four or five decades. It's, it really does vary. I don't know, a line or a voice or, or a plot. Um, usually I don't know the plot of a story before I start. Is that fair to say? Probably, yeah, till I get to the end. That's just fascinating to me because you have set yourself this project and, I mean, you did give yourself parameters. I thought, wow, just to imagine the sort of voice that would capture a story that you've already loosely, you know, given yourself an idea of based around the the scientist. Um, Yeah. We're jumping jumping around a little bit. There are 20 stories and in such a short time it's impossible for us to capture everything everything in the collection. So I want to pay a little bit closer attention to one story that really captured me and hopefully we'll give the listeners a bit of a flavour uh, of the, the collection Ordinary Matter. So the story I've, I've selected is Something Close to Gold and in Something Close to Gold you present sort of a strange almost Kafka-esque world where a woman finds a baby on the beach and must enter sort of a shadowy bureaucratic world to secure its adoption. Now, Something Close to Gold is dedicated to Irene Joliot-Curie, Mary Curie's daughter. Her work on the synthesis of radioactive elements has been described as almost alchemical. Were you trying to capture some of that mystery in the extraordinary chance of her find, of, of your, your narrator mm. finding the baby? Yeah, total chance. Um, and also total... Um, intrigue with her husband that they were sort of in cahoots together so I knew that I wanted this story Irene won that medal with her husband uh, and I think he used to be her student as well so I did have the idea of a pairing it, it needed to be a story with a really small cast there's a husband and wife they're nowhere near 1933 they're nowhere near Paris they're like sunny coast 
Queensland, slightly now, slightly in the future a little bit, um, you know, the weather's a bit unusual, I guess. And yes, she has a moment of discovery. And, you know, like I could have written 20 Eureka stories, and this is kind of a Eureka story. She finds something that she really wants. And um, a few of the women scientists in this book, you, you get this, these lovely quotes about the moment they found what they were like, quote unquote, looking for, or the moment something um, shifted in their research. So in Something Close to Gold, the unnamed woman, desperate for a baby, we sort of open up on her. She's come from a, a fertility clinic with bad news and she's having a drink and she's feeling like perhaps this is it for her and it isn't going to happen and this baby that she wants and this baby that her lovely husband who she adores and who adores her isn't going to happen. And then out in this strange weather, she goes for a run along the beach to clear her head a little bit and, and yeah, finds a baby at the water's edge. And from then on, I guess, yeah, it kind of does depart from reality, doesn't it? Yeah. Fair, fair to say. It's. I mean, I, I, I feel say. like it works on so many levels. I, I want to get. Let's let's come to her husband. So, Frederick is the husband of the story. Irene Joliot Curie's husband was also Frederick. He he began as her student and became her partner. Yep. And I wondered how much that role was then being mirrored in the story because your unnamed narrator is the discoverer. She is the fighter. She she drives the momentum of keeping this child forward. While Frederick is described as sweet and docile, mm. supportive, but ultimately mm. he isn't driving things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And she sort of other people, I like the idea of other people not knowing in this story, why is he with her or what do they see in each other? They seem so different. Um, But in that lovely way of a partnership, I guess, she has qualities that that he needs and vice versa. And when they're in the car on the way to the um, bureaucrat's office at the end, usually he would do the talking with the driver and keep it all chatty and keep it upbeat. And he just can't do that at that moment. And, and something has grown in her that means that these roles have, have shifted a little bit and the things that she never thought she'd be able to do or cope with, she's been able, able to cope with by the end of the story. And yeah, I just thought Irene and Frederick, let's put them at the sunshine, let's put them at the sunshine coast. Let's have them working together, devoted, um, really believing in things for other people and like, I know people like this who are really, um, you know, singular as a pair, like in a, in a really lovely way, like pairs, couples mm. who who don't need a hundred friends on the side and who don't socialise with their colleagues, that it's the two of them against the world a little bit in a really lovely way. And um, that's probably what I was thinking of. And that story – Started. There was a whole other scene I wrote, actually. The first scene I wrote was the scene in the fertility clinic with this voice of this woman. I had the voice of a woman who was just hugely disappointed with this baby that might not happen that she'd been trying for. Mm. And, and she was sort of coming to this realisation like you do sometimes, like, oh, that thing that I really wanted, it's actually not going to happen. So I'd written that scene. That was the first one that just came out um, handwritten, I remember. And when I wrote more of the story, I 
bloke in my writing group just said, you don't need that. You know, like it's just sort of mm. one of those pieces of editing things where I'd written myself into the story to teach myself what the story was about a little bit. Mm. And it turned out that scene can just be one line later on in the story. It doesn't need to, to be there. So we start much more directly with her at this really low point on her day. Mm. You mentioned uh, earlier that the story at a certain point takes a little bit of a departure perhaps from a strict reality. And mm. I wondered about these these strange bureaucratic departments and whether – so when, when your narrator finds the baby, she almost immediately yep. then sees a sign, a sign that she'd never noticed before that says lost on the beach, found on the beach, and gives a number to call. And it's it's it happens in this strange way that – you know, almost um, happenstance chance, but it's also completely necessary to legitimise the finding that she made. And when I say it like that, I can hear straight away, this is what happens to each of these women as they are discoverers of incredible scientific advancements, but it, they still need it to be legitimised and almost that whole, a whole Nobel Prize um process mm. is that legitimization. Was that where, where you were going kind of with that... I um in my first book I have a character who has a gets a letter in the post that says have you found something have you found this thing give this number a ring mm. and so I was sort of I'm riffing on myself I guess from that first book too it it, it was more about chance I guess mm. like maybe this sign that she's never noticed before has been there the whole time yeah. this thing has been there the whole time under her nose and she's never noticed it because she hasn't had to notice it before now. So, you know, in the, the vein of discovery, curiosity, and also like, you know, again, sounds dopey, but being open mm. to things in the world that are presenting themselves to you, even when you don't notice them, those lovely moments, there's this sign, call this number if you've found something. And she gets home and it's the number for a bureaucratic department that she's never heard of. And that's when she gets on the phone with this man who will change change her life a little bit but I needed her to just Mm. go with it and you hope that the reader goes with you in the same in the same way that she picks up this baby and in a swift movement she's off the beach seen a sign and is back home and you hope that the pace of that the reader goes with you and goes okay I'm, I'm into this I believe this world for now for the next 15 minutes I'll see where it goes and then as they descend into the shadowy world of the departments that the family have to negotiate, you put me in mind of a little bit Kafka, maybe David Lynch when he's feeling particularly weird. Um, and you've got a, <laughs> the narrator has to brave this bureaucracy to secure the child, first from this strange poetic functionary, and then there's sort of a, a maternal former sea captain. And I don't want to get too mm. Freudian here, but were you... Maybe Do looking, it. Go for it. <laughs> well, you may be looking to interrogate that unique intergenerational genius and legacy of the Curie family here. Well, kind of. The Curie family is a totally – they won the first three medals, the first mm. three women who won medals the, the, till 1947. No other woman had won it. Mother, mother, daughter, and a daughter who had been with her mother um, to America and, and – sort of worked alongside her. Irene was with Mari while they did those, um, took the x-ray into the, the battlefield 
So Murray and Irene um, converted these vans, took x-ray equipment and just like bumped along the road to these hospitals to x-ray soldiers during World War One. Totally interesting. So she worked alongside her mum and she's like a, I don't know how old she was then, not very old, you know, like a teenager, a, mm. young, a young woman and her mum x-raying all these soldiers during battle. So, yes, I find that family really totally fascinating, really, really interesting. The bureaucracy thing, I mean, I've worked, I've worked as a public servant um, and all good, but I, I do find it really interesting. So it was a bit of a story about language, like the thing that, that gets, that, that lets them off the hook, I guess, or the thing that opens up this new window that ends the story, that gets us to the end of the story, is a bureaucratic loophole. It is a matter of language that whether they get to keep the baby or not or whether they get to find the baby or not find the baby is all down to um, a little bit of, of language and someone spying a little bit of hope because was the baby found on the beach or was the baby found on the water because love, they're different departments, don't you know? Um, and I just think that's really, you know, these little pedantries. Mm. Of, all of language and in department sometimes. All I've but, got in my in head right case, now. It actually saves us. All I've got in my head right now is we do not comment on on water matters. <laughs> do you remember that from um? A on what, sorry, we, oh, we, on water matters. We yeah. do not comment on on water matters from a particularly. Uh, we shouldn't be laughing because yeah. that was a particularly dark point in Australia's uh, refugee policy. And so, what what your? Well, you know what's interesting mm. in an, in the book. Sorry, in um, Susan Medalia in Australian Book Review reviewed Ordinary Matter a few weeks ago in this lovely review, and she mentioned that um, onshore, offshore, Australia's long and continuing dark um, service that we are doing to people who are arriving in ways that the government does not want them to, and um, that there is something interesting in having a story set on the coastline, on the eastern coastline, all this coastline, all this water, Deliberate, yes. Mm. And so the the strange sea captain at the end of the story may or may not be Marie Curie. That may be me just going a little bit too deep in my dive. Oh, Andrew, I love that. Mm. I, I mean, that, that's really cool. I hadn't thought that way. No, in my it's head, somebody else. It just has but I really like that. Mm. That's really lovely. Now, creation, creation, it seems to me, is at the heart of ordinary matter, but not not just some crude idea of carving something out of nothing, but rather it's it's a crafting, it's a relationship, it's something that takes time. What do you think your subjects, the 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 women whom you are either directly or indirectly paying homage to, what do they have to teach us about these relationships of creation? Hard work and you know, like tenacity. Um, a couple of them tested this stuff on themselves. Rosalind Yellow, 2UU, tested her um, malarial treatment on herself first. That's one lesson, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Like if you're not prepared, like that's devotion to your subject and devotion to other people um, before yourself, I guess, isn't it? To If you're not sure whether this is going to work, then you subject yourself to it first. I think a lot of them, what I find interesting and maybe teach me is 
is how well they just got on with things, how resilient they were. Um, Rita Levi Montalcini from Italy was, you know, hounded out of her university position because she was Jewish, set up a lab in her bedroom, had to move house, set up a lab in her basement, had to move house, bombed all over the countryside, but lived to 103 and kept working, travelling all over the world, promoting education for girls all over the world, um, dropping some nerve growth factor into her eyeball every day, which I just love the sound of to keep her youthful, to keep her youthful and vibrant. She said, yeah, I'll just drop it in my eyeball once yeah. a day. And, and the other thing I think is really interesting about teaching is, yes, we spoke earlier about this idea of Marie Curie as being so devoted to her cause, quite singular, blind as on. And then there are other people like Dorothy Hodgkin, the only British woman to win, 1965, and um, all my research into her, I find her totally fascinating. She's a bit of a favourite, is how she was not the opposite, but entirely collaborative. She spent 35 years mapping the structure of insulin, so devoted, perseverance, all of that. But there's this story of one conference she went to um, and instead of her delivering this paper, I think it was, she got the youngest member of the team to deliver it. You know, like that sort of, I don't need this anymore. Mm. I'm going to sort of boost somebody else had this whole team and, and Francis Arnold and Donna Strickland, who are the two most recent winners, in, in most of their acceptance speeches as well, mm. do, do sort of acknowledge, yes, I'm winning this enormous prize, but back home in you know, Canada for Donna Strickland and, and California for Francis Arnold is this entire lab of often young, brilliant minds who get to work with these women, but they acknowledge them. You know that that I that it is a team effort at a at a really high level team effort. Mm. Um, that perhaps having those blinders on and being so devoted is um, is not the be all and end all. You mentioned there the the story um, Dorothy Hodgkins, and that's the story in your collection Frost. And that that story was behind the question I asked you before about the narratorial voices you come up with, because that one particularly fascinated me. Mm. It's a it's a real, really framed narrative where the story is ostensibly about a woman going to paint Dorothy's portrait, but the way you tell it is a narrator telling the story of their sister who they thought was going to be a brother, and there's this kind of juxtaposing mm. of ideas of had you been my brother, had you been my sister, and what that means. And I loved I love that story for the point of view that you created. Is there something in the collection about this idea of women and the history of women in the twentieth century and what they have achieved precisely because they were not born men, as this narrator keeps mm. talking about his sister? And that that one I got lucky with that voice, Andrew, because I've been trying to write Dorothy's story in so many different ways for a really long time and it just never worked. Um, you know, often I'll write a draft and it gets redrafted, but it's basically the same idea, like something close to gold changed a lot, but it was essentially the same plot. But Dorothy's story just was wildly different, many different ways, until I hit upon the idea that I put this portrait of her that I came across, and then you just keep clicking through links. 
who painted this portrait? Maggie Hambling. Oh, who's Maggie Hambling? Click through that. I love these little rabbit holes. Hours pass. And there's this lovely story of Maggie Hamling talking about her brother who wanted a baby boy, um, not a baby sister. And then when this baby sister arrived, he was kind of like, all right, you'll do. You'll do. In that lovely way that kids would do. I thought I wanted a baby brother. You're a girl. You'll do. I'll do all the same things with you that I would have done, you know, in these ideas of, you know, gender, what I would have done with a baby brother. And she, there's a line where she said, he said he would, teach me how to wring a chicken's neck. And from that line, I was in. And that was it. I'll, I'll, I'll teach you how to wring a chicken's neck. So the story starts with this list of things that a, a older brother, Roger his name was, might want to teach this little girl who turns out to be fabulous, fun, bright, weird. She used to sketch dead bodies, um, was obviously got up to a bit of mischief. And, you know, like I'm projecting things onto this real woman, Maggie Hamling, just like I'm projecting things onto um, what their first encounter might have been like. If you go to paint someone's portrait, you go several times to their house. But what might that first meeting have been like um, between these two women? And I think in the portrait, it's a very tender portrait and it's clearly painted by somebody who... Um, saw something, I think, projecting again, saw something in Dorothy in this aging scientist who was about a decade, had a decade left um, of her work and her life. And so you're reading into this and I'm looking at the portrait hundreds of times and and researching Maggie Hamling and and so that, but that voice all came from that line of, ah, oh, this is narrated by a dead man to his sister um, who is the portrait artist of the scientist. Why not? And that proje- Why not? <laughs> that projecting, that reading into was obviously something that concerned you because you do discuss that as well um, in, mm. in your, your artist or your, the brother saying, you know you shouldn't read into things, but you do, you must. We, we must. And, mm. I mean, that, I, think that, I think that is something wonderful too about Ordinary Matter. We, we're at a time where perhaps our... Our science illiteracy is coming to the fore and we, we as a world have to learn more about science than we ever cared to. <laughs> everyone's, mm. everyone's slapping themselves that they didn't pay closer attention at school. And yeah. you have also, you are teaching us in ordinary matter that there is also a very human heart in the science that is being done. And so when we hear about the world trying to advance science 10 years in 10 months, that would be something I think we'd do well to keep in mind and Ordinary Matter does exactly that for us. Yeah, there was that, that Jonathan Webb wrote um, a story this week on the ABC and the first line is like, science isn't used to this sort of attention. Mm. And it was about those bloody hard workers in Oxford mm. who were trying to come up with the COVID-19 vaccine and how it's hit a snag. And this story is as outlining, and I'm not a scientist, so I, so I always love reading this mm. stuff to l- learn about it. They hit a snag. Someone in the COVID test, in the COVID um, vaccine trial, has gotten ill, and and the, the article was is sort of saying, "You want something so badly. We all want this so badly. This is normal. We are trying to do something that takes years. In ten months, mm. nine out of ten vaccine trials do fail, and we never and never see the light of day. But the like you said, the attention on this one." These researchers have probably just worked very quietly usually, 
the pressure and the intensity and the the sheer desperation that this will work, mm. but it still has to go through every other rigorous process. You can want something really badly, doesn't matter. It still has to work and the process must play out. Yeah. Um, let's leave, I want to, I want to leave on a quote from the, actually the end of Frost, which I think beautifully encompasses what we've just been talking about there, where the narrator is walking along the beach. No, the narrator is imagining his sister walking along the beach. Friend is going too fast. You motion for your friend to slow the hell down, thinking that nothing will ever speed up the time it takes to paint a portrait, to sculpt something with your hands. It takes as long as it takes and it always has always will. That's just beautiful. And that's what we need. It's not just art. It is science as well. And that is something that we, I guess we need to understand. I am speaking with Laura Elvery. We are discussing Ordinary Matter. It is her short story collection, 20 stories uh, dedicated to, in homage to the 20 women who have won the Nobel Prize for Science. Laura, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Laura Elvery. Laura's latest short story collection is Ordinary Matter, and it's out now through University of Queensland Press. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. This show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser Click subscribe in your podcast app. It means you'll have a new Great Conversation to enjoy every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. Till then, happy reading.